The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Really, every culture has its own values that become so common they are no longer checked by anyone. And here are a couple that are common in our culture today. You commonly hear hear people say things like, that's just your interpretation. Or, well, no one can know anything for certain. Those common phrases which have gone unchecked for uh, our current moment are accepted without reality because, of course, it's illogical to say all interpretations are relative because that's your interpretation of interpretations, right? Further, though it has a sheen of humility, to argue that no one can know for sure is actually imperious arrogance, because that means you know for certain what everyone else cannot know for certain. And yet these common phrases are left unchecked. And so I was very much helped as I was able to study this passage from Matthew 12, where Jesus is discussing somebody's interpretation, which Jesus unambiguously declares definitively wrong, (laughs) and then says that there is the right interpretation, and that we are responsible to recognize it and to respond to it correctly. Now, the conflict that Jesus has with his interlocutors, in this case, the Pharisees in Matthew 12, will brim, and it'll bubble over, and then Jesus will teach on something without pulling any punches that he calls the unforgivable sin. But for us to know the unforgivable sin, we must know the context in which this conversation happens. And so the title of today's sermon is The Unforgivable Sin. But to make it easy to follow along, in Matthew 12, there will be a conflict over interpretation, but then Jesus will get to the fact that underlying a discussion of interpretation is actually a hostile heart. And then he will discuss the unforgivable sin. So look with me in God's word in Matthew 12 as we go line by line to follow what our Lord is saying. This is the teaching of Jesus. We saw just a moment ago as our brother read it in verse 1, please don't miss the time that Jesus is going through the grain fields. In perfect wisdom, he's going through the grain fields on purpose on the Sabbath. And his disciples are hungry. And they pluck heads of grain and eat. Let me give you some Old Testament background that you may not be familiar with. God, in his compassion and mercy, combined work and welfare in the Old Testament. And he commanded that those who owned fields were not allowed to reap the edges of their fields. They had to leave the edges of their fields for those who were poor. It was a welfare system that God set up. But God combined welfare with work because he required those to come and get the grain themselves. You were not allowed to have it done by someone else. Now here's what made it acceptable. You weren't allowed to get the grain with a sickle. So you had to come get it by hand. That way you wouldn't reap tremendous amounts. And that way, of course, it doesn't work. So on the Sabbath, it is totally permissible by hand to come and take grain. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Leviticus 23:22 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. 
Our God is a compassionate God. He cares about the poor. He cares about the needy. And so he combined welfare with work in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees still found something to complain about. So look in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath commandment of not working or resting. But are Jesus' disciples actually performing a vocational job by taking grains of ear by hand? Of course not. So why are the Sabbath rules being added to by the Pharisees? Why are the Pharisees condemning what God does not condemn? See, the Pharisees had made up what we might call a student handbook for life. (laughs) They had added hundreds and hundreds of man-made traditions that they claimed were ways to draw edges or boundaries even beyond the Bible, but in fact, the weight of authority moved to the man-made rules that they had made up. They had, in fact, made up 39 different categories of ways that you could potentially break the Sabbath law through work. And they defined using your hand as winnowing and then pulling out the grain as threshing. Of course, it wasn't. But with their man-made rules, the Pharisees had come up with their own authority and their own interpretation and their own way to live. Now, you, you, you may not know that those man-made rules were eventually combined in what's called the Mishnah. And if you go to Barnes & Noble this afternoon, you can find the religious section and you'll find the Mishnah there. And all these man-made rules became foundations for rabbinical Judaism. But this is where they started. So Jesus knows that what his disciples are doing is not actually a breach of the law. But now Jesus corrects them in a very interesting way. See, God is the one who made the Sabbath. And God made the Sabbath to be a blessing, not a burden. But when humans make up our own rules, they tend to be burdensome. (laughs) And so Jesus gets to the deeper problem. So look now in verse 3. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the presence? At this point, you might think, where is this conversation going? (laughs) I thought it was conversation about the grain, but now Jesus moves it somewhere else on purpose. David entered into the house of God, the tabernacle at that time, and ate the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was bread put out by the priest every Sabbath evening. It was consecrated bread. It could only be eaten by priest. It was a way to show devotion to God. In fact, Jesus admits in the end of the verse, it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priest. And yet, David remained guiltless. So Jesus' first example is David did something that the law does not technically say he could, and yet it was okay. Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? His point is priests work on the Sabbath day, meaning that they're working. Therefore, technically, they would be profane the Sabbath because they're working, and yet they remain guiltless. See, what Jesus is saying is a provocative question. How can these people do something on the Sabbath that's not lawful and yet remain guiltless? And here's Jesus' big point. If the Pharisees are condemning what God's word doesn't condemn, that means that the Pharisees' interpretation of Scripture is wrong. So to the opening question, but isn't that just your interpretation? And aren't all interpretations relative? Aren't they all equally valid? No. 
and interpretation can be wrong, and the Pharisees' interpretation of Scripture is wrong. They've not only misunderstood the Sabbath, they've misunderstood the entire Old Testament. If they think that things must be condemned, that God does not condemn, then their entire approach to the law itself is wrong. Their interpretation cannot make sense of how David would be okay and how the priests would be guiltless. Therefore, they've missed everything. Now, I want you to not miss what a big deal this is. If Jesus came to North Carolina today and he declared that an entire denomination of the United States is flat wrong, they just missed it. They misunderstood the Bible, and the entire denomination needs to be denounced. That's the equivalent of what he's doing here. The Pharisees are a school of interpretation, and he's saying they are absolutely wrong. So can Jesus call things wrong? Yes. Are there interpretations that are wrong? Yes. But the deeper question is then, who is Jesus? If David was able to do something and be guiltless, Jesus then is implying that he and his disciples are like David and his followers. Look down in verse 23 of Matthew 12 so that you see where the text is driving. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David, referring to Jesus? See, David was able to do something because he's in a special, consecrated, anointed position that permits it for him and his followers. Does Jesus have that same status? Does he have that same standing? Now, if you've been with us throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this has been a recurring question. Remember in Matthew 9, two blind men cried out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. But then the Pharisees responded, oh, it's only by the power of the prince of demons that Jesus gave these blind men sight. Now, son of David may not mean much to you, but in the Old Testament, God promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a special descendant who would be a king whose kingdom would never end, whose righteousness would rule and reign forever, who would have a scepter that would rule over the entire world. So the question that any Jew would be asking in the first century is, when is that special descendant coming? And could this be the guy? So the question about Jesus is, is he that special descendant? And so now we're going to see the conflict rise even more. Verse six, I tell you something greater. Now, first, let me pause for a second. Jesus has already told the Pharisees that they're interpreting scripture wrongly, but don't miss that the law is the entire livelihood of the Pharisees. It's their whole life. It'd like be telling someone who's preparing to play basketball that they've been shooting with a football their entire life and they've never done it right. Or telling someone who's a lawyer that they've been studying the wrong country's laws their entire career and they've just completely missed it. That's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. You've missed everything. But what he says now would make them gasp even more. So verse six, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now no one in the room gasped just now. (laughs) But everyone would have gasped when Jesus said that. Something greater than the temple? No way. 
We were delivered from Egypt so that we could get to a place where we could have a tabernacle. There's nothing greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple? No way. David did everything to get the Ark of the Covenant back. Something greater than the temple? No. Nehemiah spent his life building walls to protect and promote the temple. Something greater than the temple? Of course not. Ezekiel promised that the glory of God was at the temple. There's nothing greater than the temple. Jesus says, actually, yes, there is. And if you don't know that, you've misinterpreted the entire Bible up till now. Something greater than the temple is here and is right in front of you. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, those who are actually guiltless. This is now the second time Jesus has given this quotation, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea chapter 6. Verse six, again, he's showing them from their own commitment to the law that they claim they know so well. If you actually interpreted the law correctly, you wouldn't be condemning me and my disciples because you would know the intent of the law. Hosea is a book that in some is a prophet's appeal to God's people to return to the Lord in repentance. But see, what Israel is doing is something that still is done today. Israel has skin-deep, surface-level obedience. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They go through the rituals and the sacrifices, but in reality, they don't really live as people who depend in faith and trust on the Lord. In Hosea 6, verse 4, God says that their love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. If you know the book of Hosea, Hosea's wife, Gomer, epitomizes that sort of fickle, fake love. So now twice Jesus has applied that scripture to the Pharisees. You have the kind of fickle, fake love that is exactly what the entire Old Testament was condemning, and now you still are acting in. God is not impressed with mere words and religious observance. Now this problem is one that still exists today, so let me quote D.A. Carson, the warning he gives us. He writes, every generation must remember that integrity and righteousness are more important than religious ritual. It should come as no surprise that many people who are religious cheat on their income tax, abuse their children, covet their neighbor's car, and love nothing so much as personal pleasure. Their religion serves as a cloak to cover their sin with a veneer of respectability. The actual religion of the Bible, he writes, is more about character than choirs, more about real transformation than religious tradition, more about God and the gospel than leadership and glitz. But that same skin-deep religiosity that characterized the Pharisees and can characterize us today misses what the entire Old Testament was pointing to anyway. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He desires a real relationship, not fickle, fake love. So the Pharisees, for all their moral indignation and scrupulous rule-keeping, are actually phonies. So verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see what he's saying here? They've made up countless rules about the Sabbath, but the Sabbath's not theirs. They've made up their own interpretation, but do you know who determines the meaning? The author. Meaning's not determined by the reader, but by the writer. 
So Jesus says, this is the meaning. This is the truth. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, not you. So as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the author, he knows the intent and purpose because he's the writer, which means their interpretation is wrong. So don't miss what's happening here. Jesus has tied them in knots with two seemingly easy examples. Oh, you think you know the Sabbath, and how do you explain David with the showbread? You think you know the Sabbath, and how do you explain the priests working on the Sabbath? Oh, you think you know the Sabbath? Then how do you explain that something greater than the temple is here? Now, if that conflict is just simmering, the heat is about to boil. Look in verse 9. Jesus went from there and entered their synagogue. Oh, man, you get it, right? Now he's going right to the heart of where all their thing is. You think we were having a debate out here? I'm going to take it to where you gather. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand. I love God's providence. What are the odds, right? And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. I want you to notice a couple things there. Before, they're mad about Jesus' disciples. The disciples are eating the food, not Jesus. But Jesus now takes the matter right to their face, in their home base, and now he is going to perform the miracle. But lest you think that people around you in Raleigh or in your workplaces are neutral, why did they ask the question? Do you see it? So they might accuse him. Never think that someone's neutral. Everybody already has a presupposed ground of authority and belief, and so no one asks questions from some neutral position. Oh, if I just knew. (laughs) No. I want to know so that I can accuse. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He's pointing out their hypocrisy. Your own things that are your possession, you'll bend the rules when it's beneficial to you. Verse 12, so of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And so now listen to the author of the Sabbath's correct interpretation. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Your your interpretation, Pharisees, is wrong. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Glory. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And the author of the Sabbath knows what's good, declares what's good, has revealed what's good. But notice verse 14. Yet the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus is right. The Pharisees are wrong. The rhetorical evasions are simply trying to mask their hostile hearts. It's not an issue of evidence. It's not an issue of demonstration. It's an issue of authority. Now, ironically, the person that they hate is infinitely more gracious and gentle than they could ever hope. So look in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and yet ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. If you've been with me in Matthew, don't you hear the connections? What did God the Father say at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is where it's from. And what happened next at the baptism? Who ascended on him like a dove? The Spirit. Look at the next verse. I will put my Spirit upon him, you see? And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This person who they so despise is the most gentle, all-powerful being you could ever hope to imagine until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I have to tell you, these verses were so vivid for me because we, before we lived here, we had a a large forest within walking distance of our house, and so we would take the kids out there and walk, and we had so much fun doing that. But now that we live in suburbia, I'm having the most difficult time explaining to my boys that there are property lines. And that you can't just run up to somebody else's tree and pull it. And you can't just find somebody else's flowers and pluck them. So we had a very interesting Mother's Day when Judah came home to my wife and had a handful of flowers. And I had to go around the neighborhood figuring out where they were from. (laughs) Anytime they see a reed that's bruised, they break it. Other time they see a smoldering wick, they quench it. And yet the all-powerful, omnipotent one doesn't. It is a remarkable thing. But see, the Pharisees are angry because you know, right, what the first century Jews wanted? They wanted someone to come crush Rome and be a political ruler with might. And yet the actual son of David, the special descendant, the king with all authority, will come first as a suffering servant, will come first as a lamb led to the slaughter. See, Jesus has been telling them all throughout that there's something greater. So now look in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed, and they asked, can this be the son of David? That's the key question. Now let's pause and answer it. Is this the son of David? Is this the special descendant, the king of kings? The answer is It's the greatest son of David, the most special descendant. Actually, someone infinitely greater than David is here. You see, David went into the tabernacle and he ate the showbread and he and his companions were not condemned because David was anointed and consecrated as king. But do you remember later at the end of his life when David wanted to build the temple? Was he allowed to build it? He was not. Because David, unlike Jesus, murdered a man and stole his wife and could not build the temple, which he ironically went into as a young man, but could not build it as an old man because there was blood on his hands. But Jesus, the true son of David, had blood on his face to wash clean anyone who, like David, would repent. Has the greater son come? Praise God, he has. Not only is Jesus greater than David, he said in verse six, he's greater than the temple. Do you remember when they have that mock trial before Pilate and they can't find anything bad that Jesus has done and they harangue two witnesses and have them give testimony against Jesus? Do you remember what the testimony is that they give? This man said that he could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And that's what they used to condemn him to death. And I remember the first time I read that thinking, wait, Jesus, of all the metaphors you could have chosen, why would you pick the temple? Because you know that would make them mad because that's the thing they love. Why not say, my body's like a fig tree and if you cut it down, it'll regrow. That wouldn't make anybody mad. Why did he pick the temple? 
not because it was the easiest metaphor to draw from. He picked the temple because he is the true temple. That's why on the cross, when his side was pierced, the curtain was rent in two. What the temple's purpose was, was to show there is a meeting place between God and man. And now God has come as man, and he is the meeting place between God and man. A greater temple has come. Not only is there a greater son of David, and not only is there a greater temple, but here's why Jesus keeps quoting Hosea 6, verse 6. Because something greater than skin-deep fake religiosity that only hits you on Sunday morning has come. Why have skin-deep, shallow religiosity when you can have the perfect righteousness of God's Son given to you by faith? See, Jesus is quoting a text because the Pharisees have tried to look religious when Jesus can actually make you righteous, born again from the inside out. Is Jesus the Son of David to answer the crowd's query, praise God, yes, and infinitely more? But any reader of Matthew would know the answer. Do you remember verse one of Matthew? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Here he is. And yet the Pharisees essentially argue, well, that's just your interpretation. Let's look in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, oh, it's only by Beelzebul, prince of demons, that this man cast out. And they can't deny all the people he's healing. So they have to come up with a new interpretation of it, like we do today. We can't deny it's the truth, so we have to come up with a new interpretation of it. We have to say interpretations are relative. Well, that's just your opinion. We can't really know anything for sure. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And now Jesus does what many of us may be afraid to do, but I love Jesus' firm commitment to the truth. He now cuts past the argument over interpretation and gets to the hostile heart underneath it. You can argue about interpretation. That's not actually what the argument is. The argument is really about your stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth. So look now in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is the unforgivable sin? This morning, in the hallway, outside the nursery, someone told me they read an article in the Raleigh News and Observer this week by a rabbi, which I haven't read, so I'm going with what I heard in the hallway, where apparently the rabbi argues that the unforgivable sin is suicide. My parents are from a Catholic church originally, and they were taught that as well, that the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, is suicide. Is that actually what the text says? Surely not. 
The unforgivable sin is not some specific action like adultery or murder or anything else that you think of as particularly bad. All sin separates us from God. Nor is it merely to assert what is false about the spirit, nor is it merely to attribute spirit-empowered miracles to Satan. No, the unpardonable sin is to decisively refuse to accept who the spirit reveals Jesus to be. And today he does so in his word. The unforgivable sin is to refuse to accept reality. Something greater than the temple is here. The son of David has come. The skin-deep religiosity that's fake has been overcome by something that's real. See, to decisively reject the clear truth about Jesus as revealed by the Spirit is actually an evasion of reality with rhetorical flourish. But if one persists in it, it cannot be forgiven. Which means then that the unforgivable sin is the most common sin in the human race. So look down in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if that's the problem. (laughs) How many miracles have they just seen? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he was, and he rose. And then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, the least committed evangelist ever. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In both of his examples, it is outsider Gentiles who responded with far less revelation than these insider Jewish teachers would have had. The principle remains to whom much is given, much is required. Here is all of this wealth of revelation. How could we neglect so great a salvation? When something greater has come, the king did come, and his kingdom was demonstrated. But when his kingdom was rejected, the king did the unthinkable. Rather than raise a scepter to immediately crush all his opposers, he raised a cross to climb the hill of Calvary. Rather than coming in processional and power and might and having a crown of diadems, he instead came in apparent weakness and had a crown of thorns. Rather than the king crushing everyone who opposed him, he wouldn't break a bruised reed and instead his body was broken for you and I. See, the king did what we couldn't have ever imagined or dared, but by God's grace is our only way to be delivered. Praise God, the king has come to take your sin and mine. And he's conquered it. And he's risen. But now you must respond to reality by turning and trusting in Christ alone. And not giving in to the rhetorical evasions that are so popular in our cultural moment. Well, you know, that's just your interpretation. See, the Bible, and here's my big applications, which you probably have on your handout. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. Humans can and often do get it wrong. But if we get it wrong, we're wrong, not the author. 
Number two, the Bible must be rightly interpreted so that the author of it would approve of man's interpretation. It must be in line with the author's intent, not the reader's inclination. In America today, many people reject the truth of Scripture. And they may come up with rhetorical evasions, but the real reason is the reason behind the reason. It is an issue of the discomfort of the truth. See, the Pharisees didn't like the truth because it would blow up everything. If you've been playing basketball with a football and you're trying to go pro, it's pretty embarrassing to admit that now. And if you have to admit that the truth makes life uncomfortable, then that might be difficult. Richard Topping has written that we live in a time when six of the seven deadly sins are medical conditions and pride is a virtue. (laughs) It's a hard time to take the truth seriously. But Flannery O'Connor maybe put it best when she wrote this, you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. (laughs) See, you could avoid being odd but then you'll never know the truth. And according to Jesus, you'll also never be forgiven. So what's at stake in this text is everything. Something greater than the temple has come. Someone greater than David has come. Something infinitely better than skin-deep religiosity has come. And he calls today, are you on my side or will you be scattered? Whoever is not with me will be rejected. It's very clear because there's truth and there's error. See, the ultimate test always is Jesus. So may God rescue us of the pride or the lust for control that would cause us to push against a reality that we know is true. And may we receive the one who's done everything for us. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, it is, it is amazing grace that the one who has all power and all might would not snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed, but gave his body to be broken for sinners. How shocking it is that the one falsely accused would pray, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. But Lord, through this passage today, we now clearly know what we are doing. We know who Jesus is. He is that promised son of David, that king of kings, that king who shockingly wore a crown, that king who shockingly was torn. But unlike David and unlike us, Jesus never sinned in any respect but fulfilled all righteousness. So why would we try to argue that we're good enough when the reality is we're not. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and we face just condemnation, but he unjustly. So may anyone today who's yet to call out on Jesus Christ and acknowledge, Lord, I am a sinner. I am wrong. Forgive me, God, for my pride, for my lust for control, for the sinful thoughts I've had about so many things. Lord, please forgive me on the basis of what Jesus did for me perfectly. May they cry that today in faith. Thank you that whoever will cry that will be saved. May we take seriously Jesus' sobering words that whoever refuses will not be forgiven. Lord, I thank you, though, that the unforgivable sin is not some big bad sin. Thank you for forgiving Saul and turning him into Paul, a murderer. 
Thank you, Lord, that all sin, no matter how bad it is, is not greater than the grace of God at the cross. So, Lord, the only thing that would cause us to be condemned eternally is if we refuse stubbornly to receive the truth. Just to give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive. And as believers, Lord, may our confidence be always in the truth of God as revealed in his word, winsomely but unapologetically, because thus saith the Lord is the ultimate standard of truth. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.